preferred the other option instead of just choosing one or the other is the Bible teaches both, so let's just believe both. And let's not try to mix them, let's not try to mash them up, let's not try to say, let's take these two lines and make them intersect in some strange way because we will do damage to one doctrine or the other. That's the only place where we'll be. And it's going to be these, these two verses, 29 and 30. 29 and 30. And it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's just one point to this morning's message. Just one. If we all take away just one thing, this is what we have to take away. What is the good that God is working all things together for? So we have to look at this passage in context. We have to look at this verse in context, in the context of verses 29 and 30. Otherwise, what do we have happen? We get the mug and the t-shirt and people walking around and uh, they're like, oh, well, obviously we're going to win this football game because God said he's working together all things for good. And then when we don't win the football game, well, apparently this wasn't good. We take this way out of context, but we have to remember, we can't throw away the t-shirt and the mug. And I say this to be super encouraging because otherwise we'll have nothing to drink out of in our house because we all have these mugs, amen? We all have the t-shirt probably, we all have the magnet on our fridge and what is not being said here, what I'm not saying is throw this stuff away. That's not it at all. Instead, what I am trying to impress upon everyone this morning is from the passage that this verse has power to it that we have failed to comprehend because it's become kind of like one of those trinket verses to us where we have the keychain and, you know, we have all this stuff and, you know, we, we toss it around even, well, don't worry, God means this for your good and we don't exactly understand the full implications of that. So what we want to do this morning is lean in on the true meaning of the context so that these reminders that we have will be more helpful. So the first thing we have to realize is Paul is building on a thought the verses that we're looking at this morning, they are within the context of a conversation. So I could say any number of things to you, and if you take one sentence from that, you can make me say anything you want me to say. That's just the way that life goes. So we need to understand in context what is being spoken of here. So let's just look one more time. I understand I have the headline wrong up top, but the verses are right. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So we have before us this morning a doctrine of predestination. There has been tears that have fallen. There has been blood that's been shed. There are churches that have separated, denominations that have split up. This doctrine has caused so much confusion among the church that we really don't know where to go with it. So what exactly do we mean by predestination? Well, the exact meaning of that word in Greek is to be predetermined. So God has predecided some things to happen. He's determined something beforehand, all right? So the question that ought to be on all of our minds is what? What has God predetermined beforehand? 
Does it mean that there are those God selected who would be saved and those who wouldn't? Well, typically on both sides of the spectrum, we have this argument. We have Arminians that believe God foreknew the people that would select and believe in him for salvation. And uh, so that's the way things go. God foreknew who would say yes and selected those. And then on the other side, we have those that say... Does it mean that God foreknew those who would accept him as Savior? Does it mean the Arminian view that uh, God looked from the beginning, looked ahead, and he saw these people will accept me, so I will pick them? Or does it mean God selected these people and they're going to select him no matter what? They're going to choose him no matter what? What exactly does all this mean? Well, what's awfully important for you and I to understand this morning is from this passage and others, what are Christians predestined for? So, if predestination exists, and it is in the Bible, can I get an amen? It's there. We read it this morning. We are predestined. What are we predestined for? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, just for a second. Blessed be the God of our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, Basically, it's saying there are some that are predestined to be adopted in Christ. And as I already said, this idea has been one of hot debate for centuries. So a question we need to ask is, if God has pre-selected who will be saved, if God has predetermined something, then what does that do with man's responsibility? Does it undo our responsibility to respond. Well, let's look at just a couple verses uh, within the context, the greater context of the Bible. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This verse is talking about God's sovereignty over those who will be saved. Right? Everybody see that? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is something that God himself does to bring those to himself who will be saved. Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So again, we see here an, an act of God's sovereignty. God has selected, he's predestined, he's chosen, he has elected certain people for eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father the, your work of faith and labor, of love and steadfastness, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know 
what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So here we have it right in front of us once again. God's choosing. God has chosen some people. These are predestined. And 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. The elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So clearly... God has predetermined who would be saved. We see that in the Bible. Can I get an amen? It's there. We cannot look over it. We can't look past it. We can't say, well, that's not what that means. It's there. So then here is where the real question comes in. Are we just robots? Because this is the view that is typically spoken of by people in the argument. So if you were pre-selected, predetermined to be saved, then what responsibility could you possibly have? Do you have any responsibility? If God has elected and selected from eternity past those that would be saved this morning, the people that are in this building that are Christians today, is that only because of God and nothing on your responsibility at all? Or are we just, are we just robots? Are we just kind of operating within the parameters that God gave us and we really don't have a choice in the matter? Is there a responsibility on the part of mankind to believe? Let's look at a few verses. Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, it does not say... I will make you repent, does it? No. It says these people must do what? Repent. It says they must repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, in Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to ask everybody a really seemingly silly question. Would God ask you to do something that you do not have the ability to do? All God's people said, no, right? No. Would God ask you to do something that you couldn't do? No, absolutely not. Let's look at John 5, 39 through 40. You search in the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So wait a minute here. If all the responsibility is completely and totally in God's sovereignty and none on mankind at all, how can we refuse to come to Christ that we may have life? Seems like a contradiction within the scriptures, doesn't it? So clearly, the Bible teaches, and there are many other places that we could go in the Old Testament and New, clearly the Bible teaches that we do have a responsibility to respond in the affirmative to the call of Christ. Flip back just for one second. Just look at exactly what's being said here in John 5, verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we have these two planes. These are spoken of by many preachers, many pastors, and I've listened to lots of sermons about this this week, uh, trying to gain some perspective and listen to these men that have studied much more than I have. We have man's will, what some people call free will, what some people call man's responsibility, and we have predestination or sovereignty. 
So the question that we have is, are both of these taught in the Bible? Well, I've just demonstrated to everyone by putting the verses up that these verses, uh, that both of these doctrines are taught in the Bible. Amen? All right, so we have free will. Can I get an amen? And God is totally sovereign. Can I get an amen? So what happens is we try to intersect these two. So theologians and preachers, they say, well, let me show you how these two are linked. And then what happens? Well, we cannot infringe upon God's sovereignty without making him not sovereign, right? So either God is totally and completely in control, or he's not. If God just gives up one iota of his sovereignty, then he is not totally sovereign. Amen? He's not. If man gives up just one part of his free will, if our decisions are not of our own volition, if just one tiny iota of our free will is given up, then our will is not free. Amen? So let me ask everyone this question. Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God force Adam to put that fruit into his mouth? All God's people said, no. No. Did Adam put the fruit in his mouth? All God's people said, yes. Of course. It was a choice of Adam's of his own volition. Now, did God work through that? Absolutely. Why is that? Because God is completely and totally sovereign. We look in the scriptures and we see this again and again and again. Man makes decisions and God honors our free will. God honors the fact that he has given us volition and the ability to make decisions, be them good or bad. God has given us this ability. And at the same time, God uses these circumstances and these decisions that we make and brings about good. So the Bible clearly teaches both. And we have people on both sides that, well, he more teaches this or, or more teaches this. So what we have is people that believe God is completely and totally sovereign to the point where they can beat their wife and say it was God's fault. To the point where they can rob a liquor store like we looked at last week and say, God must have wanted me to do this. God told me to do this. Or we have the other, stand, the other side of the spectrum where man is totally and completely in control of all of his decisions and he can do whatever he wants really without consequence because God really isn't doing anything about it. The Bible teaches that we are totally and completely free to make decisions and at the same time that God is completely and totally sovereign. And I know this seems to everyone like some sort of dichotomy and, and we can resolve uh, not to believe either one. Or we have to be on one side or be on the other side. And that's what many people have done throughout history. Look once more at these verses. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, God did, God did sovereignly elect some for salvation and... Those he elected will be saved by placing their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And this verse does not violate either the doctrine of God's sovereignty or human responsibility because both are involved. So you say, boy, this seems like some sort of synchronistic, weird doctrine that you're teaching. Uh, not really. Probably uh, one of the most 
respected uh, men, especially today by a lot of the Christian community, is John MacArthur, because he's really taken a stand for his church, and now California has actually overturned that they can't meet. So we prayed, God acted, and now these doors have been opened, and now they can meet legally. There's nothing pressing against them. John MacArthur has been an influence over many people throughout his long, long career. Now, that's not to say that he does not have, you know, some errors in some of the things that he believes or that some people don't disagree with some of the things he teaches, but he is a very sound man. And he said this. He said we are to believe both doctrines with our whole heart. So how can that be? Well, we have two options in front of us. We can either believe one or the other, or we can believe both and not try to put them in the blender. Because when we put them in the blender, what we end up coming out with is either God as the author of evil or mankind as much better than we actually are. When we put them in a blender, we either come up with God operating as, as a chess player and moving us where he wants, and when we sin, he was somehow involved in that, and the Bible says that God is light, and in him there is how much darkness? No darkness at all. Or, man is actually quite good and full of all of these good choices and uh, really doesn't need God to impress anything upon him. Or the other option, instead of just choosing one or the other, is the Bible teaches both, so let's just believe both. And let's not try to mix them. Let's not try to mash them up. Let's not try to say, let's take these two lines and make them intersect in some strange way because we will do damage to one doctrine or the other. There are some doctrines in the Bible that we cannot mix together. Now, they can be read in context. They can be understood in context. Absolutely. But we cannot take these two and mash them together because we will create for ourselves an idol. So we need to look at what's being accomplished through these means. Through what means? Through these means that are before us. What is the good that God is working out for those who love God? Remember, that was the verse we looked at last week. It says, we know that all things work for the good of those who love God. All things. So what is this good? Well, let's look at these verses just one last time, I promise. To be conformed to the image of his son. You, if you are in Christ, are being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is sovereign, sovereign God's will. This is the sovereign God's will that he's working out that you and I will look a lot more like Jesus Christ. How is he doing this? You and I have choices to make before we leave this place and after we leave this place this week. Uh, I'm going to surprise some of you are going to have a good week. Really good week. It's going to be really easy. Not many of you. Some of you are going to have a really, really hard week. And there are people that are around us that are frail, that are going to become more frail, or we will become sick ourselves, or, uh, you know, we'll just have bad days. These are ahead of us. And God's going to use these things. God uses all things for the good of those that love him. What works does God use? Well, God has four works here listed, right? 
Let's look at them real quick. One, he predestines. This is something that God himself does. He chooses. It's his choice. Not only that, he calls. He calls people to himself. It is only God that does this. When you and I go out and we evangelize, understand this, we're not saving anybody. We are placing the call, and it's whether or not God calls them and draws them to himself, whether or not they are saved. God not only does that, God is the one who justifies. It's not us, it's not our works, it's not the things we do, it's not this huge laundry list of, well, I did this this week and this this week, I gave up this time for this. God's the one that justifies. And he also glorifies. And each of these are spoken of in the past tense. Why? To show us the certainty. So it's like when you go to an adoption agency and you tell the kid, you have been my son. This child is being treated as if he was always the son. This is what God is doing. He speaks of the past tense to show us the certainty of the things that are ahead. Each of these are done for the good of those who love God. Each one of these works. So let's get real practical in closing here. Every single, every single circumstance that's in front of us, every single one this applies to, What are we going to do with all this information we have? Now we have this information that God's totally in control. He is totally sovereign. And we also know that we make choices and these are important and we'll be held accountable for them. What are we supposed to do with this? The knowledge that God is using all of these things to form and shape us into the image of his son Christ and that he works all things for good for those who love him. What are we to do with this? Every single circumstance that you and I are facing this morning is not just some arbitrary event. I have a list here. I actually have two of them. This is not hieroglyphics. This is my handwriting. These are things that are happening in the lives of those that we love. And should we wait during the time when we collect prayer requests and I say, I'm not going to close this up until every single person gives me something, everyone would. Because there's someone that is weighing heavy on every single heart in here. Everyone. And you all need to understand, and I need to understand, we need to walk away from here with the understanding that God is not allowing these things to happen just so that they happen. Understand that it is really, really hard to lose people when we know that, but God is using this. It's not arbitrary. And this is the saddest thing about atheism. When an atheist is lying at the bedside of of a spouse. That's it. They're not seeing them to a better place. That's, that's, That's the end. And that event is not changing their life at all because they don't want it to because they're totally and completely sold in the fact that our life here is meaningless and purposeless. But every single part of your life has meaning and purpose. Every single part. So I want you to just think for a second because there are people here from all walks of life from all ages. I want you to think for just a second about the hardest thing that you went through. For some people, that's losing someone. For some people, that's someone that walked out. For some people, that's being sick yourself. For some people, that's losing that job. For some people, that's not being able to keep the home that you wanted. For some people... 
That's being completely and totally betrayed by the person you trusted most. And everyone needs to understand God did not cause that. God is not the cause of evil. But those events are not wasted. Every single part of your life, good or bad, in our perspective, has meaning and purpose. Every single one. If we walk around and live life as though the thing we're going through right now has no meaning and no purpose, what hope is there in that when the scriptures say that God is working all things together for good for those that love him? Every part, even the parts that seem arbitrary, even the events that we do and and they don't seem like they accomplish anything, God is using that too. He works all things, not some things, not the things we decide. He works all things together for the good of those that love God. He is working all things together for good. So we say, you know, this is hard and it hurts. Yeah, it does. I get it. I know. It does. You think God doesn't understand how much it hurts and and how difficult it is what you're going through right now? He does. And he will use this for good. And for right now, we may want to be mad at him and say, well, I don't like the way you're doing things. Well, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Can I get an amen? We may not understand what's before us, but he does. He is using all things, working all things together for our good. And if you are a Christian, no matter what you're going through, no matter the degree of suffering, he is working all things together for good. And hallelujah, this is the most encouraging thing that I've been able to read to people all week long. Hearing this gives me such great encouragement because the thing that is in front of us, as vile and awful and dark and painful as it is, he's using it. So this means this thing that is in front of us doesn't have a period on the end of that sentence. It has a comma. And right after that comma, the next two words of that sentence are going to be, then God. Then God. God is not finished with you and your circumstances. God is not finished working out the things that are in front of you. God is working. He's working all the time. And it is for the good of those who love Christ. Let's pray together.